Hello, and welcome to the sixth episode of SF Crossing the Gulf. I'm Karen Burnham. And I'm Karen Lord. And today we are here to talk to you about Mary Doria Russell's debut novel, The Sparrow. It came out, I believe, in 1998 and, and won the Clark Award, amongst other things. And this is a book that is very strongly about religion. It's about first contact with aliens. Um, it's perhaps one of the most character-oriented works of science fiction I've ever read. And in my view, I think it plays with expectations as masterfully as almost any science fiction novel I've ever read. And yes. as such, it's not a spoiler to tell you that, <laughs> that the first contact mission that Earth sends to an alien planet after SETI has established that there's intelligence on an alien planet not too far away is that the, the mission ends in tragedy with a sole survivor. Um, we learn that basically on page one. Then mm -hmm. we go back and find out who the people of the mission were and how the mission came to be put together and then what happened on the mission. And in a parallel track, we learn... Basically, we start at the end... Uh, with this parallel track, with the focus being on the sole survivor of the of the mission, mm -hmm. um, a Jesuit named uh, Dr. Emilio Sendaz, who is a linguist. And we know that he's extremely ill, that he's mentally just been battered, um, and that his hands have been ruined. Um, yeah, the hands thing is, is, uh, is very significant on, on several levels. Oh, wow. Should we just... Should we describe the mutilation of his hands? Why don't you go for it? <laughs> well, his hands have been the 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 flesh between his fingers that go into his palm. They've been divided, so that it's a it's a sort of an effect of elongated fingers. But of course, that means he can't use his hands at all because all the muscles that would allow for flexibility of the digits. All those have been cut, muscles and nerves and so forth. So you have an effect of a wrist and then just these very long fingers directly attached to the wrist. And this was a, a very deliberate, shall we say even ritualistic mutilation. Right, by the aliens to this, this person. Uh, we also find out fairly readily that when the second mission that went to this alien planet found him, he was in a brothel, and that the first thing he did when they found him was he killed a child, an alien child, who seemed to care for him. Yes. That's the other thing you find out right up front. Mm -hmm. And so the parallel track, so we, we get the one track that starts at the beginning and goes to the climax, and then we have a parallel track that starts after the climax and reveals the aftermath until both tracks lead to us finding out what the climax actually was. The yes. Point, basically the point of tragedy. And I have to say, that structuring was just so well done. Oh my God. Really, just so masterful. That kind of thing is so difficult to do. Oh, yeah. And it's like a, a multi-dimensional jigsaw puzzle. Yes, yes. I was, I was thrilled by it. And I was... <sighs> when you start and you are knowing that this thing is leading to tragedy, you, you kind of wonder to yourself, what in the world is going to motivate me to keep with this? Trust me, she gives you every motivation to stay with it. 
even as you're learning about the characters who are involved and you're 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 falling in love with this character the character the various characters are very compelling very well i don't want to use the word flawed that's that's a bit of a cliche when we talk about characters but no, they have nuances i mean they're three-dimensional Exactly. They've got, they've got history. They've got they've got traits that are very very individual from each other. They've got motives that, again, don't don't necessarily match or are are all in line with each other. It's fantastic to watch. So you begin to love these characters, and you're reading it, and you're loving this character, and you're thinking, "You're gonna die. How are you gonna die? I have to read about how you're gonna die, <laughs> and you want to stop, and you can't stop, and it's incredible, really. Well, and and I will. I, I, I'll tell tell folks this is that, you know, I, I had started reading this novel early in a week, you know, like a Monday or a Tuesday. I was reading in the evening and then it came to Saturday and I was in the final maybe third or quarter of the book and I was reading it over lunch. And then I went into the living room and, and I was reading and reading and my husband came in and said, oh, hey, do you think you could take care of this one thing? And and I stopped and then I looked at him and I went, no. Actually, I'm really sorry. I can't. I need to finish this. And he was like, oh, okay, because he, he knows me. That doesn't happen often with a book, but he respects it when it does. Yes. And, and to give another example of amazing things this book did to us, the night after I finished it, I woke up at about 3.30 a.m. in full-fledged thought about a particular plot point. <laughs> We're talk- I'm not even saying I was dreaming about it unless I was dreaming unawares. Mm-hmm. I'm not even saying I slowly came awake and then just started thinking about it. I came awake instantly and I was in mid-thought about this part of the book. And I was I was like, my goodness, this thing has been just percolating in the back of my brain. It's incredible. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, it really I, sticks I, with you. Yes, it's fantastic. It, it succeeds on many levels, many, many levels. So whatever else we say about the book that may seem, you know, that may qualify whatever, you know... Uh, that may seem less than 100%, you know, perfect. We just want everyone to know that this is an incredible book that is worth your time, that is worth your while, that is really one of the best written books of SF I've ever had the pleasure to read. And amazing for a debut novel. Absolutely amazing. When you throw in the fact that it was her debut novel, I mean, she was a writer. She was a, a, a technical writer, basically. She wrote nonfiction and articles and essays. Um, but for this to be a, a debut work of fiction is just amazing. Mm-hmm. Okay, so having gotten sort of the impact and, and the quality of the work out of the way, um, what next? Let's see. So this, this book deals so centrally with questions of religion. It does. But I was wondering if we could start with what I thought was one of the weaker aspects, and that was the aspect of the science. Because we were supposed to, this is supposed to be about hard SF. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is not hard SF at all. Um, I, I, oh, wait, hang on, hang on. In one respect, I will admit, I will allow it to be hard SF. What's that? Well, remember we talked about um, the combination of the actual theories being accurate and then the actual depiction of the scientific community being accurate we mentioned two of those factors as possibilities for determining what is hard sf fair enough fair enough and this does actually meet both of those criteria theoretically there's nothing impossible about what they did (laughs) Um, these are scientists 
it's a bit of a, a, a leap of faith, if we can use the term. Okay. But here's what we're talking about. So yeah. we find out that, that there's this alien culture because of SETI. SETI actually finally pays off, and uh, the astronomer who's monitoring these signals, he, he gets a repeatable signal, and he starts analyzing it, trying to rule out whatever terrestrial cause he assumes is causing it. And, and he finally uh, deciphers the signal, and it's alien music, and everyone yes. agrees that it is. So that part's really cool, and, um, and the depiction of astronomers, he's working at Arecibo, that's all um, up and up. Uh, the trip out, it's basically, it's, is it actually Proxima Centauri or Alpha Centauri? Anyway, it's about four light years. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this near future where the story starts, the, the, the beginning of the story, um, let's see, there's asteroid mining is common, apparently. Mm-hmm. Which again, That's a bit of a leap of faith, but okay, nothing yes. wrong with that. <laughs> but mainly the Australians were some. No, the Australians are on Mars. And that was what that was. Yeah, Australians were on Mars, and it sounded like sort of Singapore type people were out um, out doing the you know like trading in futures on asteroids and. Okay. So what? Once people decide, and once specifically the Society of Jesuits decides that they want to uh, put together a mission to go to this nearby star, they order up an asteroid, you know, an asteroid that had been basically surveyed but found not to have anything worth worth mining, and they um, they trick it out so that it can accelerate continuously at one g. For forever, more or less. You're, you're not saying this with a straight face, are you? No. no. Really <laughs> I, I, even as I was reading it, I was like, okay, they have a magic accelerating asteroid. <laughs> and and there's nothing. And and she actually works out the time dilation where much more time passed on Earth than passed for the people who traveled, and and that all works fine. And and she's absolutely right. If you could accelerate at one g for an extra you know, for a long period of time. For instance, if you could leave Earth accelerating at 1G, you could get to Mars in a couple days. Okay. I mean, that's wow. how much that acceleration matters. And that's right. including the, the bit where you, you know, stop stop accelerating, flip around, and, and start decelerating at 1G. Okay. Um, hmm. You know, in, in real life, it takes almost a year to get to Mars. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. So... Yeah, that that was a bit much to swallow, but again, I was happy to swallow it. Given- I was happy to swallow it as well, and I do think that the only reason why for me it jarred so strongly was that so much of the rest of the book was so realistic. Yeah. It felt almost like near future SF as opposed to far future, because of far future SF, you're willing to credit all kinds of bizarre things um, as being true and and so much of it is near future sf again when you you start at the beginning of the story and it's um oh how do it's a soft it's a soft decay kind of scenario it's very much like our world except a lot of things have gotten kind of worse yes well there's climate change and sea levels and and there's still slums and there's still shanties and there are different forms of indentured servitude and people's jobs are getting replaced by AIs. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, it's our world, just a little shabbier. Yes. And that mm-hmm. felt very well extrapolated. And strictly speaking, even the, the timings, when did they leave again? 2015 or something? 2040? 
Or is that when you came back? Came back in 2016. Okay, so yeah, 2020 might have been when they left, somewhere around there? Sorry, 2059 was when he was back, yes. And 2019, yes, that's when they were, they were starting to think about going. Okay. Yes. So, so it was, it was that bit of science that you had to sort of just close your eyes and hand wave a bit. Mm -hmm. But as I said, largely in sharp relief because the rest of the book was so realistic and so tied to our present sort of understanding of technology and science and what we see around us. And another reason why I was quite happy to just let it go was that you, you recognize from very early that the book is in fact a direct parallel with the entire New World experience, the New World discovery. Jesuits from Europe going into South America, etc. That kind of, you don't know if you've ever seen the movie The Mission? <laughs> yeah. Right. So you, you know that she's setting up that kind of scenario. And if she's setting up that kind of scenario, there are certain things that have to be leapt over and not examine too closely because yes if it were directly according to how it should unfold both for this both for contemporary technology and also for contemporary understandings of how to carry out a mission what they went into wouldn't have happened couldn't have happened and that was the other aspect to me that i had to think about not in terms of being strictly scientific how the mission itself was planned the protocols were well, <laughs> what can we say? what you should do when you have a first contact experience, I would hope you would think more deeply about that. There seemed to me to be some hand-waving about the question of contagion. And I mean contagion from the biological point of view. Yeah. Uh, okay, so this gets into what I think is actually, from my point of view, the weakest part of the book, which is the mission. Once, basically... Once the once the crew lands on this new planet, so much of the mission plan. And again, this is coming from me, from a from a NASA, you know, background kind of kind of person. Um, oh dear Lord, what the hell were they thinking? <laughs> There's so many. Yes, oh, it was, and, and it was just like serious spoiler territory. So if you want to read the book and have it not be spoiled, turn off now because this is where the real spoilers start to happen. Uh -huh. But really, they had that little fuel reserve, you know. And, and there was just, to me, there was just no sense of of redundancy no. because because yes, in a way, you have to travel light, but it's an asteroid. There should have been quite a lot of space, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, you know, when you know you're going someplace where there's no hope of of immediate rescue, I mean, yeah, you you go for redundancy out the wazoo. Um, and I understand that for the I, I did understand one thing which is that for the structure of the story at a certain point she had to cut off their means of escape right? yes so that's when so the way she did that was by having um, there was a couple characters who'd gone back to a landing site they crashed their ultralight plane the ultralight plane was a very good idea Mm -hmm. But then when they flew the lander back to where the rest of the party was, that drained their fuel reserve such that they could no longer take the lander back up to orbit and they were trapped. Yes. Sure. And I must admit that I, I will accept this on the level that when they crashed the ultralight, they were injured. Mm -hmm. And the person who made the decision to fly the lander back, why, why walk when we can fly? 
was actually suffering from a head injury. Yeah, so probably probably shouldn't have taken decisions. Right. Yeah. I, I totally don't blame her at all. I really do think it was a poor mission planning. But honestly, given that the author needed to have them be stranded, it would have... Mm. It, frankly, it would have felt better if the lander had been hit by an asteroid. <laughs> I'm sorry, a meteor. You know, I mean, just some Deus Ex Machina. Maybe there, there was a flood. I don't care, but the to have the mission planning be that poor. Ah, no, but you've raised an important point there because the theme of the entire book was how so many tiny decisions in the wrong direction, or I shouldn't say the wrong direction, in a particular direction, led to certain consequences. So there's relatively little deus ex machina in any of this, ironically speaking, considering we're going to get some theological aspects later on. But there's always a case of they had decisions to make and they made them and there were consequences. That's a very, very good point. And... And all of the decisions are just each decision taking on taken on its own. Even the one about the fuel reserve is individually justifiable. Yes, yes. Another area where I thought they should have had redundancy, but which would have made for a very different book, was the number of people. Again, if you're talking about a man-made structure. A small number of mission crew makes sense. But again, with the asteroid, I thought that for, again, for redundancy's sake, you could have had a larger group of people, some even staying on the asteroid and, and you know, be, keeping it sort of running and self-sufficient. And then you have an away team, if I may use the expression. <laughs> That can, can pull up quickly if something happens, because there was a strong sense of... It was almost as if... The phrase I would use is eggs in one basket. Mm-hmm. Because they, they pretty much all landed together, didn't they? Yep. That they did. So, so if they had all just sort of went down there and immediately been slain by some turbo effect smallpox kind of thing. Right. Or malaria kind of thing. That would have been the end. Yep. So, so no redundancy there. But we we will hand wave the biological aspects. We will hand wave the mission planning. Although we will hand wave the if, if if we can circle back to what you just said about the the, the small crew, um, mm-hmm. this also brings up a point where um, there were very uncomfortable resonances for me reading the Sparrow with Robert Heinlein's Number of the Beast, which uh, some yes. people may remember, um, some people may remember it fondly. I tend to. Uh, other people remember it with the fiery hatred of a thousand burning suns. <laughs> Uh-huh. And basically, the the plot of Number of the Beast is that this um, this family unit it's a father, a daughter. The daughter's picked up in the first chapter, husband, um, a, a colleague, and then and then the ship. I think it's just the, yeah, it's four of them, and then and then the ship. They um, they're being tracked by aliens, and the father scientist dude figures out how to. Um, how to translate between different universes, different multiverses, mm-hmm. using this spiffy science fictional widget that he installs in this shuttle, like family shuttlecraft kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, and they go gallivanting off across the multiverses. And, <laughs> and really, this is Heinlein's um, love song to stories that he loved in the past because the universes they find themselves in are almost all drawn from genre literature. They literally, they go to Oz, they go to the Lensman universe, they go to Barsoom, 
Okay. That's actually kind of kind of funny. <laughs> Not funny. Fun. I, fun. I, I appreciated it on the level that, you know, that that Heinwen I I believe intended it. Of course I also read it when I was fourteen. <laughs> <laughs> we excuse you. Um, and and of course you know all of Heinlein's very odd notions about gender and uh, let's not even go there. But that, <laughs> I, that feeling of ran- fairly random people who are friends or family saying, "Hey, let's go off and have these adventures." That yes. felt uncomfortably like what the situation proved to be in the Sparrow. I think that you're right to describe it as a feeling of discomfort because, and I, I'm, I believe that, that it was crafted that way. You get a sense of a small group getting together, gelling, becoming very supportive within the group, but perhaps not thinking very clearly about what happens to people or creation or whatever outside of the group. So it's a... Uh, the term is not Stockholm Syndrome, but you fought this long space journey where you become, as you say, like a family. And you're not going to be able to, you're not going to be able to operate in a fully objective fashion, are you? Well, yeah, I mean, it's, I think um, the only way I've heard it described is in-group thinking. You know, where, yes. where at a certain point, everyone coheres around the same notions of the way things are and it no one's able to really step outside of that framework and, and challenge what the rest of the group is thinking. Precisely. Yes. Yes. Hmm. At this point, it might be worth describing the crew a little bit. Um, so there's Amelia Sandoz. He's a linguist. He's really the core. Uh, he's he's going to be the sole survivor. He's, he's really this is his story. And he is definitely the character that the author makes you fall in love with from the beginning. Because almost everybody falls in love with him. Oh, yeah. From from uh, Anna Edwards, who is the kind of, I don't want to say elderly friend. She's not that elderly. She's what, in her 60s? Yeah, yeah 50s, 60s, over the course 50s, of 50s, 60s. Um, and her husband, George, and... Who are both basically atheists, or at least yes. secular. Yes. And then there is the uh, father, Yarborough. Yep, DW, who's a Texan. Tell me about that. <laughs> I can't a portrayal of Texan. <laughs> um, so he's he's a Texas Jesuit, but he's the one who actually recruited Emilio back in the day, and he ends up being nominally in charge of the of the mission. He's he's got military experience as well as the Jesuit hierarchy behind him. He, and he hunts them basically because he has a talk. He kind of interviews them basically to find out if they're going to be able to get across to another star system without ripping each other's throats out. Right. So. Um, so the DW there's um. There's Sophia... Oh, what was her last name? I have just forgotten. (laughs) I want to say Edwards, but that's not right. No, it's not right. Mendez. Thank you. I'm Mendez and and I survive. Um, (laughs) She is an AI programmer. She starts the story as an indentured servant, basically. She She has a fascinating past. Absolutely fascinating. Exactly. She's one of those people. She and Sandoz um, particularly... Are, are some of the best characters I've ever read in SF, where um, she comes from Istanbul, from a Sephardic Jewish uh, family. Uh, they'd fallen on hard times, and then her parents are killed in the war. 
uh, to survive, she prostitutes herself, but eventually one of her uh, one of her clients realizes her potential, uh, buys basically buys her as a indentured servant, gets her educated, and has been contracting her labor out as she yes. works off. And um, she runs into Sandoz when she's programming a linguistics program based on his expertise, and then she gets involved with the SETI program when she's brought in to try and uh, write software that would replace the junior astronomer who eventually deciphers the uh, signal, the SETI signal at Arecibo. Mm-hmm. And incidentally, Emilio falls for her, oh, very but she initially hates him because he gives off this air of being very much the, the, the Spanish um, gentleman. But what she doesn't realize until later and, and later on kind of warms to him is that he's had a childhood that's, that's almost similar to hers because he's grown up uh, in sort of the slum setting with a very fraught kind of um, family history. And he's suffered through beatings and various things. And joining the Jesuits was, you could say, a way out. He's not he's not introduced to somebody who joins up the Jesuits because he has a sense of a calling that God has called him. No. It's more of a, a case of you know he's he's very intelligent. They see his potential. This is a place that gives him structure and peace and and a, something away from the horrors that he's dealing with. And he goes in that direction, and everything else unfolds gradually. Right, and I thought that was um, that was well. And again, let me let me just reiterate that. In all these characters who have these diverse backgrounds, those diverse backgrounds really matter. They completely matter. They are integral to the plot. They're not just to the local color. To the plot, they're never forgotten. It comes out in their voice, in their attitudes, in their assumptions. I mean, the way they think is very different with Jimmy the astronomer who was raised by Irish Catholics in Boston versus Sophia, you know, who, who grew up as a, a, a Jewish and in a war-torn region, and Emilio, who came from the slums, and Anne and George, who are middle-class white folks from America. It's all matters. <laughs> yes, yes. So we've, we've almost covered it. Oh, I just want to point out that Jimmy, who's the one who discovers the alien music, Falls for Sophia. Right. Very hard. Very hard. So we've got a kind of a really... And and Sophia does, in fact, end up being attracted to Emilio and then also falling for Emilio. We We won't go further yet. We'll explain further what happens with her affections. But there's already, even before they get on the damn asteroid, this very confused and, and intertwining network. Oh, we forgot. The Texan Jesuit is also gay. Oh, yeah. And literally, at some point... <laughs> and also in love with Emilio, yes? And, 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 I got uh, that. And I love the bit where he's talking to Anne and he basically is like, yeah, you know, the good word must have a sense of humor because he made me, what, you know, Catholic and, uh, and gay and ugly in Waco, Texas. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that was that was an interesting conversation they had. I was cracking yeah, no, up. And and DW, I loved his voice. I mean, they just nailed that Texas good old boy. And sometimes <laughs> Texas good old boy is just Texas good old boy, and sometimes Texas good old boy is hiding a whole lot of smarts. Ah, yes, and he was definitely pff, huge, huge intelligence, huge intelligence, excellent at reading people, which was of course why he had that job, mm-hmm. and also very good at details. Right. And, well, I'm not going to get ahead of myself. And and one thing I should add, there are two other members of the crew who never developed as characters the way the others did. Uh, There was a botanist and a musician, uh, both the Jesuits, who were always just kind of there. 
there's Mark, who's he's the one who's the botanist, correct? Yeah, he was a French Canadian. Yes, and then there's Alan Pace. Alan Pace, who, the British musician. Yes, and they kind of round out the crew. So the crew is basically a married couple, the George and Anne, the Edwards, uh, the four. Is that right? Yes, four, four priests. The British, French Canadian, the Texan, and Emilio. Yeah, yeah. And then you have Jimmy and Sophia. And Sophia, who are of course they- and AI all around competent expert person. Yes, and they've all they've all got little overlapping things, but basically they come together for this one particular mission, and and they do they do try to have a level of redundancy in that they know a bit about. It each other's expertise mm-hmm. oh sorry we forgot Anne's expertise is that she is specializes in emergency medicine yeah she's the doctor basically and George is basically the omnicompetent engineer dude yes mm-hmm. that's his role uh, he they, they talk at one point he used to like design life support systems for underwater colonies yes so shall we start to talk about the deaths <laughs> Yeah, now that we've talked about everyone's lives, let's start talking about the deaths. Because, boy, there are a lot of them. Yes. First one to pop off. Alan Pace. Uh, who is the... We never got to know that well. Yes. And, of course, it it does trigger... uh, And he dies in a very strange way. He just... He just... Well, he just goes to sleep and never wakes up. Never properly wakes up. And, you know, they go to shake him and he doesn't really wake up. And then his breathing gets shallower and then he just passes away. And, and this is and they've been on the planet maybe three or four weeks. If so much. And they've started, they did, they did have this thing where they were trying out the different foods. Right. And they were the trying di- to be very responsible. Yes. So they were doing little test things where some of them stayed on earth food and then the others were like trying out various things to see what would, what would stay down and not poison them and so forth. And everything seemed to be going swimmingly, but as I said, he just, he just died. died. Anne carried out an autopsy. She said, I can't find anything. There could be something, but I'm just not seeing it. And there was a mini crisis in the entire group because he's the one who was supposed to be able to fully decipher oh well although Emilio is, is the linguist and language specialist because Alan was a musicologist they were really relying upon him to do a lot when it came to first encountering these aliens that made this music right because the the SETI signal was song it was basically radio broadcasts of music and mm-hmm. so they assumed that music was very important to the culture of these aliens that turned out not necessarily to be the case um <laughs> So, I, what importance relative? <laughs> right. Well, gosh, this we should point out. We should point out there are two sets of aliens. Yeah, and it's going to be super important. There's the aliens yes. they meet first, who are very peaceful, and not the music ones, and not the music ones. And then when they meet the musicians, the musician ones are very pred- well. That's almost Pred- giving it all away, but they're very predatory. Yes, they're they're basically a predator prey. Um, pair that have evolved together. Right, where both the predator and the prey are sentient. Yes, Fully yes. Sentient. Which was fascinating, which was very fascinating, and we're going to get into that. <laughs> the world building of the alien society, I will admit, is fascinating, although perhaps a little underdeveloped compared to everything else. But there's so much going on in this book, and so on, yeah. that our discussion is a little incoherent because there's so much going on in this book. Yes, Actually, yes. Everyone should read it and then listen to the podcast. Absolutely. <laughs> 
And I have, in fact, said so in my blog post just today. I said, go and borrow or buy this book. You have to. Yes, please, <laughs> please. Oh, dear. So, so anyway, well, so when Alan pops off. Now, I do want to point out that structurally it's important that we didn't get to know Alan that well. Because when he dies, we haven't invested that much in him. So True. It's like, the, it's, like a, it's like a little starter death. <laughs> Us in gently. Yeah, so the literally, <laughs> it's kind of easing us in gently to the whole, oh, things are going to get bad. You already knew these people were going to die, but don't forget, they're going to die. <laughs> now, I did say it's a peaceful death, but Anne is very angry at God yeah. because she's a healer and she never likes when people die under her hands, one. Well, and two, she's like, he came all this way. He did all this work on this music and he never even gets a chance to listen to it on this planet. How is that fair? How, how could God allow that? At that point... The whole group has started, you know, there are four Jesuits and four people who aren't Jesuits, but the whole group has started to buy in slowly to this idea that on some level, their mission has been ordained. And this is a hugely important point. Hugely. I mean, specifically it's because the point around which everything else in the book revolves. Because they've all got these very specific skills. They've, they've all got these connections to each other where not only do they get along, but on a certain level, they, they are so attached to each other that they would almost do anything for each other. Mm-hmm. And, and you have, they, they did begin to compare it to a sense of, you know, God has brought us together to do this. Yeah. This has to go for because God has brought us together to do this. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. By all means, hold on to that thought because there's going to be a bit of a twist to that. Right, right. And so, you know, a lot of the times, you know, when things fall out the right way and the mission goes smoothly and, and the, the priests will sort of look at each other and go, Deus vault, which God wills. Yes. Right? And some of the things were pretty freaky. Some of the things were pretty like, whoa, wow. why is this happening easily? So the, the getting them there was easy. Everything seemed to fall into place. They have the people who are qualified. The asteroid becomes available. Technology that was held up in other areas suddenly becomes available because there's a coup somewhere or something like that. <laughs> Things happen, you know, you know, so sorry for the people who had the coup, but, you know, here, it benefits us. Right, right. Grease is the skid, as it were. <laughs> so, so all these things have happened, but then they get there. Alan dies. And basically, and, and Yarbrough, you know, Anne is just completely wiped out by this whole experience. And Yarbrough just, he can't let it go. He really wants to, you know, he, he wants there to be a reason why Alan died. And so he says, well, but what about this other thing? And Anne finally snaps and she goes, it was God's will. Okay, fine. You've been saying everything about this is God's will. Why is it only God's will when good things happen? Why not when bad things happen? And, and trust me, that line... That line pretty much sums up the whole book. Yes, <laughs> because no, that's that's a that, really critical thing. Throwing lines in that book that you go back and you're like, oh my goodness! Oh, no, seriously, <laughs> rereading the book because I read it back in the spring and then for this I, I reread it and knowing what was, I mean, she sets it up at the beginning where you know what's kind of what's going to happen, but knowing in detail Still. what's going to happen, you're like, oh my god. So I I just want to say now in advance that. If Alan had not died at that point, do you know that it is far more likely that they would have gone straight to the aliens who produced the music? Ooh, good point. Good point. We've been really talking about a little while why this would have been a bad idea. Uh, yes. No, very <laughs> important that they didn't do that. So basically because he dies and because he's the one who was with the heavy with the music knowledge, they end up encountering the aliens who are the more peaceful ones who in fact do not speak the language that they heard over the radio signals. And Emilio begins his 
very special talent of picking up the language, teaching them English, learning their language via a child. This child is important. And because the the flex in fact the the aliens themselves use children whenever they come across another people who do not share the same language they use children to try to find a bridge because they know that children are able to pick up language in in ways that their brains are more flexible than ours are at that point so emilio talks to this child and communicates with this child and gradually picks up the language and gets along swimmingly as he tends to do. And at some point they do in fact start to consider, but you know, this isn't our original mission. We went to see the because they can re- immediately tell that these particular aliens are not high technology aliens. Right. They are, I, I don't even want to call them pastoral. They're more, they're more kind of gatherers type, not hunter, mind you, gatherer. Yeah, very specifically gatherer, no agriculture, but they also do not appear to hunt. Right. And, you know, they are, they are civilized, but they are, their, their concepts of, for example, medical aspects and so forth appear to be simplified. Uh, I don't want to say, I, I don't want to say that, I don't want to imply that they are less intelligent because I think it becomes clear later on that that's not necessarily the case, mm-hmm. but Let's say that if it's, it's, it's the difference between having someone who's, say, been educated in a system of knowledge and someone who's just gone to learn to read and write, for example. Also, note that these particular, this species of the aliens is um, very, they're not very innovative on their own, but they're very imitative to what they see. Yes. So yeah. when, when the humans do something interesting, they're like, oh, hey, we should totally be doing that. Yes. And, and that becomes incredibly important. Yeah. So they begin to fit in with these aliens. They are accepted into this small community. Yeah, basically, these, the, 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 um, these particular peaceful aliens, they're very trading culture. They're very accepting of, oh, hey, people don't, you know, people don't do it the same way as we do everywhere. Um, <laughs> trading is actually a very important concept for them. Yes, and that helps because it means they're accustomed to coming across people who are not like them. Right. So they're already open. They're already open to that. So things are so swimming, um, coming along so swimmingly that at one point they do start to say, "Should we forge ahead to the aliens who did produce the music?" And immediately Emilio says, "No, you know, I just got here. I'm just getting a handle on this language. I don't have Alan to help me. Anything mm-hmm. else? I want to just stay and consolidate this before we try with something different." And, and that was key. If Alan hadn't died, they probably would have gone straight on. So who dies next again? Uh, hmm. uh, let's see. Yarbrough starts ailing. Starts to ail- yes, another one of those explicable illnesses. Well, um, Yarbrough is described as, as literally the oldest person in the group. Yes. I, I yeah. wasn't quite sure, but I got the impression he might have been more like 70s. I don't know if it was that old. I don't know if it was that old, but I cannot remember a number being given, so do not quote me. Right. I don't think the number ever was given, but he was older than the Edwards, and they were in their, they were retirees. Right, right. So basically, what happened with him was some kind of unexplained ailment that played Mary Hell with his gastrointestinal system. Um, that Sapping him slowly over time. Again, one of these things where Anne could not figure out what was wrong with him. So he eventually, after a very close brush, recovered because there was a point where they really did think he was going to die. And 
then they said, you know, half a half a minute. We're we're kind of on the precipice here. We're we, because by then they had gone a certain distance from their landing site. This is where the the ultralight comes in. Mm-hmm. They didn't want the aliens to see a lot of weird, wonderful technology. So they were they had actually approached the aliens, leaving behind some of the heavy duty stuff that they had. So the idea then was them to fly the ultralight back to the to where the lander was, and. What else? What are they really going to do? They were going to pick up medical supplies. What was it that they really had to do? Uh, oh, and clear, and clear the landing site so it would be accessible again. They were afraid it had gotten overrun with, with vegetation, and in fact, they were right. They were right, because it crashed, because it, crashed. it was. <laughs> and they, uh, Mark, Mark and Sophia were the ones who, who, who flew in, and they suffered various cuts and contusions and so forth. Broken ribs, that kind of thing. But we're, we're able to, this is where Sophia, of course, makes her huge, huge error and suggests that they fly back to to where the rest of the team are in the lander. And at first, everybody's just happy to see them because there's been radio silence. And this is this is the other problem. Lack of an ionosphere. <gasps> right. And that actually, I, I appreciated the fact that they mentioned that, that basically this planet does not have an ionosphere the way we do. And in our early radio communications... Uh, the the okay, radio communications are technically only line of sight. Uh, once your desti- once your destination for a message is below the horizon, you can't reach them anymore. Except in our case, we have this wonderful thing called the ionosphere, mm-hmm. and radio signals actually bounce off this layer of the atmosphere and can you know uh, aim down to points beyond the horizon from where your broadcast station is. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, I used to see this very uh, distinctly. I would drive from Los Angeles, California to Flagstaff, Arizona, and there was an AM station back in L.A., and mm-hmm. I'd leave L.A., and the station would fade out, and I'd drive across the desert, and I couldn't hear it. And then when I'd climb up to uh, in into Arizona, out of the uh, Grand Canyon, or out of the Colorado River Valley, I would get it again. And it was literally because yeah. it was bouncing off the ionosphere. Mm-hmm. Very, very cool stuff. And she actually mentions this planet does not have that. They bounce their signals off their one of their moons, or actually, I think both of their moons. Yes, yes. And um, and that is also a completely legitimate way of broadcasting radio signals. In fact, um, a lot of military applications will do that because it's harder to intercept. Well, what that means is that it accounts for why the alien signals to Earth were coming at such intermittent intervals. Right. Basically, they would, whenever they aim at one of their moons and that lined up with Earth, exactly. the leakage around the, um, the edges of the moon would get to us. Yes. And then what, what happened with Sophia was that she meant to send a radio message back to the rest of the mission to say that they were safe. But... As I said, she was the one who ended up with a head injury, a bit concussed. She forgot. And when she forgot, the window of opportunity for the moons to be in position for her to bounce that signal off and, and be able to reach them, that window of opportunity was no longer there. Right, right. Now, what would make a planet not have an ionosphere? Oh, now that is a question that is far outside my realm of expertise, I'm afraid. <laughs> or not was what really had me thinking because I think it has to do with the magnetic field of a particular planet and how it interacts with the solar wind coming off their sun. Okay. Because I the ionosphere was, was related to some of the other aspects that actually shield us from radiation and coming. So when I heard it didn't have an ionosphere, I was like, what levels of radiation are reaching that planet's, planet's surface? 
Let's see. Without an ion sphere, uh, does the Van Allen belt still exist? Now, the Van Allen belt is what shields us from radiation um, on a day-to-day kind of level. Basically, the IS, the International Space Station is mostly protected by it, mm-hmm. but anything much higher than that is not, and it's very much influenced by the magnetic field of Earth. Yes. Um, uh, directing um, uh, charged particles from the sun away from from landing or from you know reaching inside that shield. Right, right. I'm pretty sure they're they share a phenomenon, you know, they share a common cause. So if there's no ionosphere, none to speak of, their their planet may not have the Van Allen belts like we do. And that's that's actually a, a big thing in terms of the actual scientific aspects of the world building. In terms of the scientific aspects, I'm not sure she dealt with how that might increase a mutagenic rate. Yes. Uh, anyway, sorry. That, that particular bit didn't come up in the world building of the story. It, it might have if the uh, if anybody had survived long enough. <laughs> yes, let's get that to the deaths, shall we? Yeah, we, we skipped the deaths for a bit. So, um, so D.W. Yarbrough knows that he's dying, and uh, three... Yes, because he hasn't fully recovered, that's the point. So that's where it starts off. Right, so eventually, three of the characters, uh, Jimmy, George, and Mark, they actually do... They, they make contact with one of the predatory aliens. They really- Who happens to have an excellent relationship with the, the kind of prey aliens. Right, which was very unusual. Which was very unusual. And again, which was serendipitous if i dare say right right um yeah they i think emilio even says to the inquiry board of the of the jesuits you know if 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 we hadn't met him none of you know it would have been a very very different experience yes um okay so three of them go out emilio and sophia are working on you know linguistic stuff Mm -hmm. Anne and and dw yarbrough go out and at this point, Yarbrough, everyone's pretty sure Yarbrough's within days of dying. Yes. And, they, and he and Anne have this conversation, and he talks to Anne about, you need to make sure that after I'm gone, blah, 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 blah. Succession planning. He talks about who should lead and who should advise them and so forth. Basically, he puts Jimmy to be the prospective leader with uh, Anne and Sophia supporting him, giving very good reasons why Sophia would not be good as a leader, nor Anne and so forth. Right. And and he's all very perceptive. And I mean, Yarbrough hadn't lost any of his mind. And Mm -hmm. there's, there's a paragraph at the end, and it's a very, very quiet paragraph. And it says, he meant to tell Anne this, and he meant to tell Anne that but death came unexpectedly to both of them and that line well that line and also the one of the things that he meant to tell Anne was not to fully trust the the prey alien the the predatory alien that they met and this was important because Anne and the predatory alien got on together very well right well, um, the, that was one situation where Emilio did not overleap her in, in having somebody love him more right um, but the other thing is again how Russell, the author, plays with expectations. You know Yarbrough's dying. And so you get the impression from the end of that paragraph, and that ends a chapter. Mm -hmm. um, That he died suddenly there and then. That that Yarbrough ebbed away right then, as opposed Mm -hmm. to having another few days. And you figure Anne is fine. Mm -hmm. Then you get a chapter uh, either about Emilio or about the guys um, in the city, um, Mm -hmm. the guys on the planet who've gone to the city. 
And by the way, the alien who is friendly to them, he carries them in, but he has them hidden so that they're not attracting attention. I just want to point that out. Right, right. And it's only when the guys get back that we find out at the same time they do that both Yarbrough and Anne were killed in that chapter by a, a rogue predator alien. No, but this is the funny thing. The term I would use, as a book does, is poacher. And let's explain a bit about that. When we first met the predatory, the friendly predatory alien, his first reaction was to, I think, leap at Emilio and try to kill him with his claw. Decapitate him on the spot. And now there was actually a reason for that. It wasn't immediately apparent. But the thing is, he came to that place because the people they were staying with, the aliens, the 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 prey aliens they were staying with were actually under his authority they were they were his i don't quite want to say plantation because that sounds kind of wrong yeah, it's not quite the right relationship i i do think russell did a good job of showing the alienness of that society yeah. but he was he was they were under his responsibility let's put it that way and they were they had the the same prey aliens used to warn the mission team don't walk about alone, walk in pairs or walk in more, with more than one person because you have to watch out for them. And then there'd be this word that they never quite fully translated, but sounded like a variation of the word for the other set of aliens. So that's where, as you say, you get that term, the rogue aliens, but they're basically poachers because this is when they begin to discover that the, you, you begin, well, begin to discover that there's a predatory, the predator prey relationship. So what happens is that these poachers come onto this friendly alien's land and shoot his prey aliens and eat the meat. So what, when he first met them, they were celebrating the return of Sophia and, and Mark. Was that right? Because the, the, the prey aliens had gone off to do a gathering, a gathering session. Yes. Gather yes. Some, some crop or the other. I should have called it a crop, because the crop suggests that they planted it. Realizing that they're stranded, they all decide to basically, well, you know, okay, let's make the best of it. Let's at least have a, a party and eat up some of our comfort food. <laughs> so, so the Texan Jesuit um, Father Yarborough hauls out his, his uh, rifle or equivalent, and he's about to shoot um, some creature that they know they can eat. And they have a little discussion where... Sophia actually says hunting isn't kosher and then he says something like well I can promise you a quick kill so the idea of course about um, kosher butchering is that the animal should not feel pain undue pain it has to be a very quick and clean death so he was saying to her hunting can be kosher if you can guarantee that you know you're you're killing this this animal instantly so when the, the predator alien met them he thought that they were poachers on his land and that's why he went to kill them at first and then when, of course, when he attacked him, he realized that he wasn't even of that planet. Well, well, at least nothing that he'd seen before. Right, right. So the, the, the aliens, the predator aliens who killed Anne and Yarborough were poachers. And we can hope that it was a quick kill. And they butchered them and they ate them. So what was, what was left, what was discovered by Emilio was and the... And Sophia. But Emilio was the one who actually assembled the pieces right well and, and sophia was pregnant at that point oh, oh sorry we, we, we skipped that didn't we skipped that pregnant because when they realize they're stuck uh, jimmy proposes to her and by that time she and emilio have 
come to the conclusion that, yeah, we love each other, but you know what? Vows are vows. I'm still a Jesuit. <laughs> so, so she has already kind of been sort of turning herself away from Emilio. And then when, when Jimmy proposes, he's like, yeah, I know that's all intents and purposes. I'm really the last man on, on this planet. <laughs> but, you know, let's, we, we're stuck here. Let's, let's see if we can make a go of it. So they, they did, in fact, get married. And she is pregnant by Jimmy. And as I said, and, then hmm? go on. let me just add that um, all the people, the, everyone involved in the crew are adults. They act in a mature way. They act in reasonable ways. They don't let things, you know, there's a love triangle there with Jimmy and Emilio and, and Sophia, but they're all aware of it. Yeah. Level. They all, they work it out like adults. And I can't even begin to tell you how refreshing that was. Um, no, there was no unnecessary drama. Yeah. It, yeah, plot, but it wasn't used for for cheap, you know, I don't know, some kind of cheap effect. Not right, not at right. And people just because they were in love did not revert to you know uh, to high school. And, exactly, I really exactly. appreciated that. <laughs> so so that's why Sophia's pregnant at that point. Sorry about skipping all that previously. And so she kind of sort of because she's pregnant because she's already kind of upset at what's happened he has her sort of stand aside while he assembles the pieces that are the butchered remains of Yarbor and Anne you know kind of rolls them up in a tarp and and buries them so that's let's see that's three deaths right we have four people left uh at this point we've got George Sophia Jimmy and Mark and Amelia we've actually got five five left Right. So then we get the next curious bit, and that's where the imitative uh, talents of the prey aliens come into place, come into play. What they have been, now, now that they know that they've been, the mission team knows that they're stuck on that planet, they started planting gardens. Now remember, the aliens who are prey are accustomed to gathering their food. So they see the whole gardening thing, and at first they think, oh, this is hilarious. Yeah, move that earth. Yeah, you put it back in the same place. That's hilarious. You're just doing this for exercise. And they're blocking it. And then, of course, the gardens start to sprout. And they're like, hang on, wait a minute. That's an awesome idea. Yeah, you know. Grow our food here instead of walking all the way out there? That's great. So so they start to to imitate that, and they start to grow gardens as well. And at first it seems to go swimmingly. There is more food. There is a sudden... They had noticed before that they did not seem to be children below a certain age. But as there's as they grow crops and the crops become available, there's more food available. There's a bit of a, an explosion of, 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 of babies among the, the prey aliens. And everybody would think this is a good thing. Except... Except... Well, except that it turns out that when we're talking about predator and prey, we're not talking about a relationship that existed in the past. We're talking about basically an ex a relationship where these two species co-evolved, but the prey species is still preyed upon for food. Uh, they're still eaten by the prey, by the predator species. Yes. So it's like... It's like going, you know, your, your cows suddenly have, well, oh, sorry. The other thing we should mention is that the planet itself also has a very strict population control uh, approach. Right. Yeah. So not among the predators. The predators are not allowed to have more than two or three children. If there are three, the third does not have breeding rights. That's very important because the ambassador sort of guy, the trader that, uh, of the predators, 
that the party meets for the first time is one of the third. And then that drives his motive for a lot of his behavior because he's looking for a way to make a name for himself and be, and be permitted to be a founder and have breeding rights. Right. Um, it also means that he had he was lower on the pecking order, which made it easier for him to form a, a level of relationship with the prey aliens that the higher level predator aliens would simply not have bothered with at all. Right. And basically because he didn't have that much to lose socially, uh, he didn't he had an insight or he had the insight to actually think about what the prey aliens were coming up with to socialize with them a little bit more, his advisors he took more seriously, so he was able to sell to the prey aliens in a capitalist way, um, mm-hmm. more efficiently than his peers, and was amassing a fortune on that level. Once he uh, understood what kind of potential the humans represented, that's when, well, mm-hmm. and he's a cap- he's a he's a businessman through and through. Absolutely. That's, that's his main motivation. Do bear in mind that even when he begins to discover that these people are not from this planet, there's not this sort of, oh, gee whiz, wow, you're from another star system. It's all still thinking about, hmm, coffee, coffee beans. Yeah, we can, we can sell a lot of these. Yeah, these this, the scent of coffee. I mean, they're very um, aesthetically, a, a scent has a lot to do with their, um, their culture. And so when they smell coffee for the first time, they're like, wow. <laughs> they don't drink it. They don't like the taste. Right. But... So, so he's more he's more into and and there again you have your echoes of the Jesuits and Spaniards going into the New World and it's all about trade. It's not about oh let's learn about these new cultures and whatever. It's really about oh what can we get from them or what can we sell to them. Right. So that's that's an important thing to to think about. So anyway, um, so at a certain point the the prey aliens start to move uh, start uh, no sorry a band like a military kind of band of predator aliens uh, comes in comes in uh, the prey aliens move out to meet them. They know why they're there. It's because they've had too many babies, and they have to. And they ask the humans to stay towards the center of the group. Um, mm-hmm. We should we should note that all the aliens are bigger than humans. Humans look like their children, like on a size scale wise. Mm-hmm. Um, and and this is where you know you start where the the where it all goes to starts to go horribly wrong if it hadn't before. Um, yes, this is so the the predators basically start saying, look, you know, you, you're going to have to give up your children. And when the humans, who've been pretty clueless about this relationship up to this point, when they realize that the prey aliens are going to basically hand over their children to be killed, um, Sophia, and that's really important, Sophia Mm. runs out from the group and says, we are many, they are few. Yes. And she says it again, and she says it again, and then they start repeating it, and it sinks in, and then there is a a slaughter. And then there is a massacre. A massacre. And let's see, Emilio, Emilio, I think, saw when George was killed? I don't remember. Um, He didn't see necessarily each person that was killed, but he he knew that that definitely he saw a a death or two. It It was wholesale slaughter, Mark, he and Mark were captured, mm-hmm. and they were taken uh, to back to the city. And Mark was completely, completely demoralized, undone, refused to eat, 
And because the meat they were being offered was obviously now they know they're friends. <laughs> so, so he Emilio, was saying, however, actually was willing to eat. I think Emilio initially, initially didn't realize that they were literally the ones who had been slaughtered recently. Right, right. Whereas but that kind of glued did, in a little like, faster. He, it's like, oh, hell no. <laughs> but when he did realize, he was like, no, this is what I'm being offered. This is my only chance to survive. I will continue to eat this, even though it is sentient juvenile flesh, basically. And, and Mark couldn't deal with it, couldn't deal with it. So they go to their predator alien friend, who, mind you, is now in a sense dealing with things a bit beyond his control. Right. We've already talked about how he's a little lower on the social pecking order. So he's got himself to look out for. He, he did make that connection with the humans and kept them a bit secret so that he could have his, his trading advantage kept secret from his competitor. Right. A monopoly on whatever new things they came up with. Right. But he says to them, look, uh, do you if you wish, I can put you under my protection. And they have a conversation. He has a conversation with Emilio where he tries to explain this. And he points out to him the ivy on the wall. And Emilio takes that to mean in the same way the ivy clings to the wall, they would sort of like be dependent on him. So he says to him, yes. And then his predator friend says, okay, great. We'll start the process. And the process consists of taking Emilio and Mark and shredding their hands into those long finger ritual mutilations. It look like the ivy on the walls. This is a realization that Emilio only comes to once he's back on Earth and about halfway through the novel and is talking with the Jesuits who are trying to um, to break through his psychological <laughs> scars. And, and it almost crushes him because then he realizes that that simple yes, he, he caused that to happen. And of course, what happens is that Mark doesn't survive the procedure. Because Mark at this point is suffering from malnutrition, as well as just being crushed and broken. He, you know, mentally, he's also suffering from malnutrition and scurvy and a bunch of other things. Yeah. So he he bleeds out. They they both they both suffer. suffer. To give it's a predator. I mean, there's no anesthetic. To give the predator alien credit, it seemingly is not supposed to be as painful for the aliens. Right. At surprised at how much they bled and so on, and they didn't seem to know to treat them, like to put pressure on the wounds to, to stop the bleeding and so forth. So it wasn't done to torture them. It really was done as a ritual, but then they just didn't seem to know how to take care of them. Right. So Mark is gone. So right now we are at the stage where we have just Emilio. Oh, oh now it just gets horrible. Now, some time has passed because even when the mission team was still together, they were there for at least a full year, was it? Oh, more than, more than. I got the impression it was almost two years. Almost two years, yes. So then Emilio spends about a year, I think, with his predator alien friend or protector by this stage. And he, they talk and he learns, in, um, learns more English and, you know, they sort of build up the language skills and whatever. But Emilio can't do much for himself with his hands, so he's basically looked after and so forth. But as I said before... The predator guy never really took to Emilio that much before. Anne was his favorite, and Anne is dead. So at a certain stage, you just hear the uh, predator alien guy saying, well, you know, we're going to transfer you to a place more suited to your, to, well, what did he say exactly? More suited? He said, he said to the 
second mission that came afterwards and said, we put Emilio in a place more suited to his nature. Yes, exactly. And what you learn, I think, later on, possibly in the sequel, I did unfortunately do the whole reading about what a sequel was supposed to have in it. So I don't know if I'm doing spoiler upon spoiler. <laughs> so why he did what he did to well, Emilio. I mean, it's laid out in The Sparrow is, you know, he, he was... He's- Order, and he he's trying to do things to to advance his position. Right. Somebody wants Emilio more than he does at the moment, and that somebody is actually the person who is the origin of, the of songs. So Emilio is sent to this place, which we, you know, he thought it was a zoo at first, where you know he's just sort of again he's just sort of taken care of and he's given things to wear and whatever, and then you know this 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 guy turns up and and you would think again it was like this this is it this is the culmination of the whole mission this is the problem that's the problem that i have so emilio having been having lost everything uh he's come to this degraded state where he's he's just being kept um and his hands have been shredded and he's lost everybody he's ever loved but but still he believes that there's a a that god has a purpose for why he's there and he comes to um to be brought before this guy uh, the, the predator alien he's been friends with um, you know, brings him to this audience and there's this obviously imp- important predator alien that he's, he's going to talk to. And he believes that all the suffering that he has suffered up to this point is worth it because he will be able to communicate mind to mind and soul to soul with this very important predator alien. Mm-hmm. Who it turned? Who is the origin of the songs that they first heard on the SETI signal? Who it turns out is a libertine. <laughs> The music is actually is, is sort of pornography poetry. Yeah, yeah. Basically, he's he's uh, you know uh, popularized this this new aesthetic form of incredibly shallow sex. But, but we should point out something. Was it really shallow sex? Because we've talked about how this is a this is a planet where birth control is strictly regulated. And the uh, the breeding rights are restricted for a, quite a significant portion of the population. So. They have had a view of sex and a relationship to sex, which is very much geared towards, you know, child child rearing and child child producing, and the the other aspects of sex, shall we say, they have they do have you know concubines, prostitutes, what have you, but they they they're cross. What's the word I'm looking for? Cross species because. They use Daryl, the prey. They use the prey aliens as well for concubines and prostitutes. So there is, there is, there's that. They also have, as you say, the the ones who are made sterile as well. So chance of, of breeding from it but in a way i didn't get the impression necessarily the poetry was considered shallow he was no, you're right no you're you're absolutely right so so what he was doing he was elevating that sterile sex to an aesthetic so in a way it becomes a perfect example of what we see through earth eyes um, of the alien behavior is never going to be perfectly accurate because it it looks like it's horrible it looks like worth it but it looks the, like the important bit is where when Amelia is finally brought to him 
in front of him, Amelia believes he's about to have this transcendent religious experience that all his life will have meaning because of of God's will. And what the alien is seeing is, ah, I'm being sold this very interesting new being for sex. Yeah. And and Emilio is is in fact raped at that point. And this goes on for months. Months he's gang raped. He shared with the guy's friends and. And it goes on and on and on to the point where he's completely broken and he's like, the next person who walks through that door, I'm going to kill them. Right. And the next person who walks through that door happens to be the child that he had begun the language rapport with at when, when he first met the prey aliens, who has brought the second mission from Earth to try and um, more, more or less rescue him. And to, to give him credit, he didn't realize who it was at first. It was basically he kind of rushed. Rushed uh, the door. As soon as he saw the door start to open, he rushed it. And once he realized it was her, he'd already crushed her. Yes. So that was, that was purely accidental, but it was additional salt in the many, many rooms. Right, exactly. I mean, it was just twisting life just a little bit more. Oh, uh-huh. God. So. It was the most horrible thing I'd ever read. And, and it was beautiful and tragic and horrible all at once. Yeah, I think I'd, I think I'd actually become numb at that point. <laughs> yeah, there, well, okay. By the time you get to the bit where he kills the kid, actually, you are kind of numb. It's uh, to me the the rape is the the moment of of absolute. Told to you, you know, for you know, up to the point where you read that, you were told pages upon pages upon pages ago that he was raped, that the kid was killed. You know, all that's coming. So it's not a surprise. <laughs> Technically, it's not a surprise, but oh my god, the way it's inter- the way it finally happens, you just feel it. Oh, oh man. So anyway, so as I said, the the second mission, they do find him. They put him back into the asteroid. Sophia's air. They send Mark- him home alone. Who does that? Oh my then, god, you, the, and, and it just oh, and he almost bleeds out, and he almost dies of scurvy, and oh. <laughs> insane because you don't put somebody in basically solitary confinement for how many how many eight, how long eight eight months of of subjective time yes eight months of- months with no one else with only to live with your pain but <laughs> <laughs> you just said that so well yeah so so by the time of course they get him back onto earth and the and the jazz was starting to deal with him and the Jesuits, mind you, the the, the priest. Now we're we're back to the actual beginning of the book because that bit with the climax and then the kid—that's the that's the, the that's the bit that all the the different plot threads have led up to. And mind you, the problem is that the mission, the second mission, has sent back all this information, and it has actually devastated the Jesuit order because all they know is that the mission was a failure that the sole survivor ended up prostituting himself and his first act when they came to rescue him was to kill a child. Right, that's all I know. That's what's been broadcast. And that, and that got out to the entire world. You know, the, all the news media, that's what they picked up. And, and there was just no way to sugarcoat any of that. So, so when he comes there, really like, you know, sorry, we can see you've been through a lot, but you are going to have to kind of explain yourself. Yeah. Well, and, and, and of the Jesuits who, who are involved in the case, there's basically there's the Father Superior who's trying to be as neutral as possible. There are two guys who are set up to be kind of advocates. One is almost a nurse and one who really is meant to be not quite a legal advocate, but to fill that role. And then one who's really meant to be the adversary, one who truly believes that, man, did you fuck up. Yeah. <laughs> and you're seriously going to have to account for yourself. 
Yes. And uh, we're not going to go into detail. Yeah, uh, wow, we've already gone an hour and a, and a quarter, and, and now we finally summarized the book. We finally summarized the book. This is important because we suddenly realized that what we had was not a hard SF story, but a deeply theological story right back to the question of suffering and so-called benevolent God, benevolent and omniscient and omnipotent God. How is this possible? How could, how could, and, and I should point out, we didn't say it before, but at the stage when there were, the mission team had landed, there was only one death and they were reasonably happy living with these uh, prey aliens. Emilio was in bliss. He was doing what he'd always lived to do. He was learning a new language. He was, he was forming a bond with this child and, you know, he was, he loved this child and his his teammates, even the ones who were not religious, looked at him and they could see this glow. And the Jesuits were actually murmuring amongst themselves, sainthood, sainthood. He might be a saint. Right. He's by God. You know, and they, they could... And this is where it becomes really important that Emilio joined the Jesuits, not because of a personal experience with God, but because it was just a way out, uh, you know, a, a structured environment that gave him peace. He was not somebody who... You, you could almost describe him as a religious atheist. He, he knew that other people had experiences with God. He wasn't going to discount that, but that wasn't really why he was in the church. I wouldn't say, uh, go as far as to say he was a religious atheist. I would say... That's, uh, that's an exaggeration. <laughs> he was... He, he did not have in his experience a, di- a direct or a personal um, encounter with God. He very much viewed the work that he did in the community work and so forth as being, yes, a service in the context of what Jesuits do and, and the beliefs and so forth. And he took things very seriously, like his vow of celibacy, which is why the rape was so traumatic as well. And, and especially after, you know, he was in love with Sophia and he held on to his vows so tightly still. So, you know, he, all of these things were all of a piece for him. And what was the amazing thing about the mission coming together as it did, seemingly so ordained, being there on this new world and everything just seeming so perfect was that it brought him in a sense, face to face with a God who was directly intervening in his life. And he'd, he'd never, I think, had that concept and that was in the wing. And so when he had that transcendent moment and at that same moment was caused the, the most horrible, humiliating suffering he could possibly suffer. Mm-hmm. At one point, he turns to the father in the in the in the plot thread that is after all this. At one point, he turns to the father superior of the Jesuit society and basically says, if there's a God, then this is a tragedy. And if there isn't, then it's farce. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's interesting because the Jesuits who are taking care of him, many of them are still looking at him and saying, sainthood, sainthood. Yeah, even after everything finally comes out and everybody finally understands what he's been through, there's a line at the very end where that, that same father superior, basically, if I recall correctly, he says, he is as close to God now as I have, no, he's closer to God now than I have ever been, and I don't even have the courage to envy him. And this is after everything that's happened. This is far after, I mean, months and, and years after. Now, we should point out that another thing the second mission discovered 
was that before they disappeared and there was radio silence. Yeah, the se- we should also mention the second mission obviously also did not fare well. <laughs> we don't know how or why. That's probably in the sequel, and I don't know. It's in the sequel. But they discovered that the prey aliens had started a revolution against the predator aliens. Because they're very, you know, they pick up on new ideas like that really fast. We are many, they are few. So That's a nice catchy line, isn't it? Take that many places. And also, they, uh, I think um, they throw out a number at some point that the, the predator-to-prey ratio is that the predator is about 4% of the prey population. So they really, they really are, a, it's almost like apartheid, isn't it? A minority who's oh, in power. Yeah, very clear way. Or rather, that, that, that very tiny mi- minority wielding all the power. Yes, yes. Now, I mentioned this because, obviously, the idea initially for the mission was to do no harm. You come in quietly, you make some connections, you're like, hey, let's, let's you know, and, and that is that. You don't intend to go somewhere and basically overthrow civilization. Know it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. They, they really did try to leave, to not... Basically, to leave a small footprint. They didn't mean to, and and so wasn't that wasn't that even in the introduction? There was a brief brief prelude, and she literally yeah. ends the prelude with "They meant no harm." Exactly, and that's and chilling. Oh my god! But it's important because when we say the mission was a failure, we're not saying the mission was a failure because there was a sole survivor. We're not saying the mission was a failure because people died in horrible ways. We're saying the mission was a failure because. It completely turned this world upside down. Absolutely. Now, okay, so I do want to to mention that um, there are a few chapters scattered through the second half of the book that are from the predator alien's point of view, and and it's all from the point of view of the traitor that they met initially, of the predators. Um, And that helps us understand what the alien viewpoint is. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Sorry, say that again? Does it very well. Does it very well. It's very economical. Um, it's a little jarring, considering that all the other viewpoints were from human points of view, both in Emilio's present timeline and then in the, in the, the past timeline of the mission. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, I did wonder, while I was reading it, if... Um, uh, how am I... How am I how's the best way to put this it's very much if you look at it from you know again we have this history where um jesuit missions went to the new world and there's a colonizer and colonized um, Mm -hmm. power hierarchy there yes obviously if you apply that same framework to this story the colonizer has the has the voice Mm -hmm. much more than the colonized do yeah, yeah. You know, at least ninety percent of the book is from human point of view, and maybe ten percent from the aliens. Yes, yes. I mentioned mm-hmm. that in the review that I posted on my blog just a little bit after uh, after reading the book, mm-hmm. and the author herself came by uh, my blog to say that she tried to address that, or or that she extended the gave more of the alien viewpoint in the sequel, which I've mm-hmm. not yet read. Mm-hmm. Um, I I don't mind her approach for the first one, and I do look forward to looking at the sequel because the first one was indeed so much about first contact from the human point of view, and that's that's fair. It, it really does just. I understand why she had to put the alien viewpoint in there, and, mm-hmm. 
and that's good and it does work, but there's part of me that wonders if the story couldn't have been told just from the human point of view. But then you wouldn't understand why then the aliens would have seemed to be evil instead of This is the thing. This is a, this is a very key thing. You needed to be able to understand why because okay, let's look at the, the whole question of the, um, the the eating of the children of the of the prey aliens. Mm-hmm. Um DW Yarborough, Father Yarborough, um shot shot some shot something to eat. Right. Yeah. He shot it. It was a clean kill, and they celebrated, and they ate meat. He was himself killed in a similar way. Mm. The, but that's not accidental. That was probably, I think that was the one that got me up at 3.30 a.m. <laughs> that's not accidental because it's, it's, it's just showing you that the, the alien who killed Anne, the aliens or alien who killed Anne and, and D.W., we're not necessary. We're not evil. It doesn't make any sense to think of them as evil. Right, They're right. Like me. Um, Yarbrough did the same thing earlier. Now, it's just that we have a particular kind of sense in our head of we don't want to eat meat that's sentient. So people don't want to, for example, eat, let's say, dolphins, okay? Right, right. Or, um, what's, or, 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 if they, or certain meat of certain primates. Because they're starting to think, okay, you know, the intelligence level is getting so that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of querying the whole sentience thing. We also have, and, and it varies from culture to culture, we also have some qualms about eating veal or eating, you know, basically babies of the species. Yeah, we don't like to eat babies. We eat eggs. <laughs> we eat eggs, but some people, of course, then prefer to eat unfertilized eggs. So, so there are all kinds of things there where you, you look at that and you're like, you know, in, in the sort of the, the scheme of what's possible, even in terms of what humans consider to be appropriate, the aliens haven't actually stepped out of bounds yet. And, and Emilio makes this point when they're talking about the child slaughter and the Jesuits are all, oh, this is horrible, this is terrible, they're evil. And he's like, no, look, they don't have any poverty. They don't have any children who are starving. They don't have any slums. All of this population control that they do that you're looking at and you're saying, oh, how horrible. Look at our world and look at how horrible it is because we have let certain things. And I thought that was a very interesting It was a very, very good speech. The man who'd been tortured by these people, understand that. Say that so again. Say that again. the man who'd been tortured by these people. Right, right. So, and again, when I say tortured, again, your question is intent because when you look at Sophia's story of her childhood, it so much mirrors what happens to Emilio later on when she prostitutes herself to survive. Oh God, I'd missed that. Oh wow. So, it's not a case of the aliens are evil. It's still not a case of that. They're still well within the human bounds of, of behavior. Damn. Oh, good catch. Yeah, no, I hadn't even made that connection. Damn. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, th- these are the thoughts that kept me up at, at three in the morning. <laughs> and she does a lot of this throughout. Now, the final thing that I noticed, I think I said to you that you said... We did have an earlier conversation on this book, I'm sorry to say, that you, you guys did not listen into, but now we're going to share part of it with you. And if I recall correctly, Karen, you said that what hurt you about the book was that so much of the mission's downfall came about be, um, as a result of them thinking that they were chosen by God. No, no, no. That, that I, I want to put a slightly different spin on it. Okay, go on. The tragedy yes. is, is heightened because they believed they were doing God's will. 
Right. Okay, good, good. That's a well, slightly different spin than what you said. So. Okay. That's a very important point. But what I said was that their problem was not their their faith or belief that they've been chosen to do this task. Their their problem was hubris, because ultimately maybe they did in fact go and do precisely what they were meant to do. Alan dying early so they wouldn't go and put themselves in the way of the predator aliens and die off quickly, and making friends with the first kind of friendly predator alien that they do meet. Um, even when you actually get the attrition level right down to Emilio, and he's the one who suffers the most, the fact that he stays with the predator alien for a long time and keeps perfecting the language, which is then important, of course, when the second mission comes, because I doubt the second mission has a linguist of Emilio's capabilities. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that he stays that long with... with, with um, with the predatory is important and also the fact that in a way all of the the being touched by god being perfectly happy being um almost in a state of bliss because he feels this is what he was meant to do and so on he was the only one in the mission who experienced all that but then he's also the one in the end who bears the most pain and in a way that is a preparation for the pain if you see what i'm saying or a kind of advanced payment it's like <laughs> How to put it, when I was little and my mother would make like my favorite meal, I would always be deeply suspicious because it usually meant that I would have to take worm medicine afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a, there's a sense of preparation in that you get that pleasure beforehand, but it's also a preparation because it does in fact strengthen Emilio. Now, a lot of people look at suffering as something that is has either sadistic or masochistic tendencies in religious people. But suffering... And it should be specifically noted that the other Jesuits in the present timeline, or the future, you know, the, the post-climax timeline, specifically say they do not believe that Emilio Sandoz was a masochist. And they had to rule that out very specifically. But um, another thing that suffering does is that it increase not well I, I was going to say it increases empathy but that's a bit of a sloppy statement let me put it more this way the suffering of saints is generally connected to the sense of bearing a burden for somebody else so you begin to see especially with the whole ritual hand shredding you begin to see Emilio yes as a bit of a Christ figure because he is in effect bearing a lot of the consequences that the whole mission team might have had to bear if they had gone straight ahead I met the predators head on. Mm-hmm. Now, that makes him not God's favorite. That was the expression they use, God's favorite? Yarbrough did, yeah. Yes. Not God's favorite in the sense that God is going to give him everything that's good and nice and will make him happy, but God's favorite in the sense that God says, I need you to carry the burden for this so that the people you love will not suffer as much. Well, and in the Christian theology, I mean, obviously, um, Jesus having been God's only son is considered to be literally God's favorite. And boy, didn't he suffer. There you go. So yes, yeah, that's why there's that, there's that parallel there. Okay. The question, the whole point of the Jesuit mission, the whole point that they thought they had the right to go as, as Jesuit, the whole, not just Emilio and his small group, was that 
if God has other creatures, we must know them. If there are other sentient souls, we must know and and we should point out the Jesuits the the whole point of the Jesuit mission they had no intent of conversion, none at all. Really none at all. Point that out because the Jesuits who went to the New World may have had well probably did have a conversion agenda. This mm-hmm. mission did not have that very explicitly. Explicitly, solely about knowing God's children. That was what that was. But this see this is the thing. The mission's hubris is the idea. That they're the only ones who are God's children, they're the only ones who deserve good things. If pointed the mission, shall we say, from a, a a higher intelligence point of view, was to overthrow the system of predator prey that obtained in that world, then in that sense the mission was a huge success. If death happened to you, then none of the mission lives were wasted. Right. And if you could throw overthrow a a, a planet wide system of of just horrible apartheid. With, with eight people, with I would call people economical and efficient. <laughs> so the hubris is always in thinking, oh, woe is me. Something horrible has happened to me as an individual. But when you widen the scope, how many more people, you know, in that world had their hands shredded, were prostituted, whatever, whatever, you know? There's Emilio, in a, in a sense, not only the Christ figure for the mission, but he's also the Christ figure helping to deliver the other oppressed who are on the planet. Okay, now now I think we really do need to go read the sequel. <laughs> sequel. And I do think I've purposely and provocatively extrapolated that to even more than I believe is in that book. Wow. But it, it shows you, and I, and I think that why I kind of go in that direction as well is that when you see the Jesuits back on earth, dealing with Emilio's return, dealing with him, talking about what happened, listening to him, watching him and saying, yes, sainthood, sainthood. That's the context they're thinking in, very much the broader context. Sometimes they're harsh with him. Sometimes he said, had things said to him by people who cared about him. Do you think you're the only Jesuit that's had stuff happen to you? You know, do you think you're the only one who's been a place where they've been tortured or murdered or raped or whatever? Jesuits have been going into into hostile places and having these things happen to them, and you are still a Jesuit. Well, you are still- he even brought back one of his former students, who of course had aged more than he was because of relativistic effects, who'd lost his hands in a in a, a letter bomb accident. Mm-hmm. And boy, did Emilio just—he was like, "Oh hell no!" <laughs> Can't even compare that. <laughs> but it's kind of true because the whole point of the Jesuit order is that, and well, I, I shouldn't say, I, should, I just shouldn't say it like that. The whole point of any order, whether you are an ordinary soldier or a god soldier, is that the individual person doesn't matter. A grunt knows that he goes in there, maybe he gets killed, but he gets killed so that the other person can get a few extra yards. And Emilio, in a sense, has to stop thinking of himself as God's favorite in the sense of, you know, everything's going to be easy and think of himself as as a grunt who is there to help somebody else maybe go a few more yards. And that's the reason why the Jesuits are pressuring him because they want to fix what's happened and they need his intelligence. They need the information that he has. So what it breaks him they're going to get that information because the whole the whole concept is bigger than one person right and they do try and be compassionate but on the same hand they really do need the information he has they can't let him just fade away or walk away 
And to tell the truth, that's a bit about the book that I most appreciated because even though you had these deep, rich characterizations, even though you had these close bonds, people who cared about each other deeply and you felt each death keenly, you still had to draw back and understand it's more than just for one person or one small group of people. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we've been going for an hour and a half. Oh, my God. And, <laughs> and, and let me just reference the Erna Broadbur uh, uh, podcast that we did two podcasts ago where we say great art can support, support multiple readings. Uh, and... And there are many readings to be had of the sparrow. I, I, I don't think either of us would would hesitate to call it great, especially in the annals of science fiction. I yes, I am so glad that I read it. And I mean, I was I had been told it was marvelous. I'd been told I should read it, and I hesitated because I knew from the very beginning that okay, there's torture, there's rape, there's stuff that I don't like reading about, um, and it's going to hurt. And I did also wonder, okay, Jesuits is. Are they, is this author going to treat the Jesuits fairly? Because you do sometimes encounter depictions in science fiction of, of religious that is done in a way that is very stereotypical. Stacked. Yeah. Now, I, I have to give a shout out to Graham Slate, who um, was the person who championed this book to me. Um, I don't think I'd have read it if Graham hadn't beaten me over the head a couple times and said, you know what you have to read? The Sparrow by Mary Doria Russell. Uh-huh. And, uh, and boy, am I glad I did. And, and I said to my husband a few times while I was reading it, both the first time and the second, this is the most awful, beautiful, perfect, tragic, awful thing I've ever read. <laughs> and you're almost like, do you, know, actually, do you know what it reminds me of in very great measure? The Shawshank Redemption. Really? I mean, I've read that and I loved it, but I wouldn't even put it on this level. Movie. (laughs) In the sense, not in the sense that the stories are in any way similar, but because the whole idea where I basically go through, like, watching this unrelenting years of torture this man goes through in prison. Mm -hmm. But just to get to the end where there's that hope that kind of, you know, that, that sort of shining moment at the end. That's what you get to the end for. So that's, that's what it is with this book. And the funny thing about it is that that shining moment, I do see as being present in that book. It's not as obvious, but the moment when the Jesuits get him to say out loud, I was raped, it's almost as if that's the moment you can see Emilio has saved himself. Is that he's going? To, he's going to be on the road to recovery. There's, it's, it's, to me, there was just that was that was like a climactic moment. Yeah, and okay, I know this podcast is going just way too long. Maybe we'll split it into two. I don't know, but um, to me, and again, great art can support multiple readings. That's not to me at the end. That's not where I hit the high point. Where I hit it was a little bit later when this Father General said. And one of the advocates was saying that was recounting the part of the Bible where where God notes the fall of each sparrow, and uh, I think yeah. it's the Father General who points out the sparrow still falls. 
Yes, yes. I, I, I can't argue with you. I, I even, I even connect the two on a certain level. No, it is, it is connected, and that's the beautiful thing. Is it's all connected, but that's where the emphasis was for me. Yes, yes. So yeah, you're right. Though we should pause at this point. An hour and a half is for our particular <laughs> podcast. But it was brilliant. It was brilliant. I feel like I. It's a brilliant book. There's more to say about it than we can put in an hour and a half. And and I think I've been certainly inspired to go read the sequel. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And (sighs) and if we can have inspired some people to go and read this book, then I think I I will consider this a a time well spent. I will. I'm sorry. I am ordering you readers. Go to the library. Go to the bookstore. Go to Amazon. Go wherever you must go. Get this book. You're not going to regret it. Whether you are a reader or a literary reader, you will you will love this book. Right, and it's available as ebook. I read it as an ebook on my iPad, and uh, and any time that Graham Slate came and hit me over the head and said you have to read this, and I looked at him skeptically, I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, I think we'll wrap it up. Next episode, we should be discussing uh, Cordella Forbes ghosts. Right, yep. And uh, whew. Yeah. <laughs> and with that, I think we will bid our readers uh, the end of another episode and hope they stick with us for, for a few more. Yes. Take care.